What does it mean for the Holy Spirit to be God? Welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. It is produced by clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor. I'm Pastor Amanda Sparrow. And I'm Pastor Sherman Waters. And he is with us today as a very special guest. And I may throw this back over to Amanda to <laughs> add a little bit to that introduction. Uh, so he's my dad. Um, he's a pastor in the North Carolina district. And he, uh, he and my mom, who is also an ordained elder in the Church of Nazarene, um, but didn't want to do the program live. Uh, but they are both here visiting. And so we, we convinced them to come onto the program with us. Interesting use of the word convincing there. <laughs> We're going to come back to that. Um, who else is over here doing the background work? And I'm Anthony Alegria. And Anthony is always doing the, the hard labor that happens behind the scenes that often people don't see. Well, today we are going to be discussing the third person in the Trinity, and that is the Holy Spirit. And we're going to be looking at the third article of faith in the Church of the Nazarene and how this article articulates the role of the Holy Spirit and our understanding of it. Now, in this program, we're not going to be able to answer every question that one might have about the Holy Spirit, but we do want to give you some pointers and some insight into this topic so you'll be able to, well, better understand this and articulate it to those around you as you reveal the gospel to this world. So let's go ahead and begin by going right into the article. Pastor Amanda, could you read Article 3 for us? All right, so Article 3 is as follows. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune Godhead, that he is ever-present and efficiently active in and with the Church of Christ, convincing the world of sin, regenerating those who repent and believe, sanctifying believers, and guiding into all truth as it is in Jesus. All right, well, let's begin by breaking this down. There is this notion that the Holy Spirit is the third person in the triune Godhead. And for many people, they might come to the table and say, what does this mean for the Holy Spirit to be part of the Trinity? How can the Holy Spirit being eternal. For many people, they may even ask a question like, did not the Holy Spirit come at Pentecost? I'm going to start by throwing this over to, to Pastor Sherman. What does it mean for the Holy Spirit to be eternal? Well, obviously, it, it would mean, uh, as we believe uh, about God the Father, um, the first person of the Trinity, uh, that God has always been and always will be, uh, as we believe about Jesus, uh, the coexistent, co-eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, that Jesus has always been. Uh, he didn't just pop up in Bethlehem one day uh, when he was born. Uh, he's been around uh, since the beginning, or since before our beginning. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit has been ever-present as well. Um, all three, co-existent, co-eternal, being together, existing as one. Well, to the question of Pentecost, when people look to the Old Testament, and even sometimes they see the term spirit in the Old Testament, Pastor Amanda, what should people be thinking when they see something with that language of spirit in the Old Testament? How should they read that word? Well, and I think careful um, study has to take place, and we have to understand kind of the different dynamics that take place in um, reading our scripture. Because and just like we we'd mentioned when we talked about the Trinity in our, our first article of faith and then uh, Jesus in our second, you know, the word Trinity is never mentioned in, in our scriptures, um, but that doesn't mean that the Trinity didn't exist. Um, 
in the spirit of God in the Old Testament may have different connotations. It may refer to the third person of the Trinity as in the Holy Spirit, but it may refer to as just the presence of the triune God. I mean, we'd have to really look into the history of that word, the history of that particular context of that passage, because um, it taking the Spirit of God in uh, Genesis may have a different connotation than if we read it somewhere, let's say Proverbs or in the Psalms or in the wisdom literature. Um, so I, I think we have to be careful, but even in trying to figure out those particulars, we always know that um, it's still referring to God, to Yahweh, to the Trinity, um, whether it is the Holy Spirit in particular or God altogether. Um, and so I think we just have to be careful in our reading of it. Um, and even then, and the reason I brought up the Trinity earlier, even though that language is in our scripture, we still believe in it. Even if the Holy Spirit isn't mentioned by name in our Old Testament, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit just pops up when he gets his special name. Um, he was, like Pastor Sherman mentioned, co-eternal with the Father and with the Son. And though we do see the Spirit kind of coming into the forefront of the dance uh, at Pentecost, well, it's particularly the Pentecost that we celebrate as the um, birth of church, because believe it or not, Pentecost was celebrated long before then, um, and is continually celebrated long after. <laughs> Um, but um, the Pentecost, as we remember, as the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the disciples who then become the apostles and Peter who proclaims that great sermon. Um, yeah, the Holy Spirit's always been at work um, with the Triune God. The Triune God's always been at work long before then and, and will continue to be at work uh, in the world long afterwards. Well, Pastor Sherman, I want to go back to this idea of the fact that the Trinity is not explicitly mentioned in Scripture with that particular language, because I know there are people out there who will come along and say, well, that language isn't in there, therefore it must be a fabrication or something to that effect. When we were preparing for the program today, I know you had some thoughts on that. What, what sort of rebuttal can we give when people come at saying, you know, is the Trinity really there if it's not mentioned explicitly in, in Scripture? I, I think when we go back and, and you look at both Old and New Testament writings, and um, I, let me just say this about that division that we've put into Scripture. I understand why it's there, and it, it helps us to uh, understand where we came from. Um, we do ourselves a little bit of a disservice, though, because somehow by putting that artificial divider between those two things, I, I think it affects our thinking sometimes. But more to your question, um, there are things that we have developed over time, theologically speaking, that maybe we can't go and trace that word to, but we have given that idea, that concept, um, a, a handle, a title, so that we can talk about it, so that we can understand it. And, and the thing would be true, uh, an example that might be for Scripture, I'm sure many of your, your, your watchers know this, and maybe you don't, Scripture has not always been divided into chapter and verse. Right. Okay, but we don't, we don't find Scripture any less real. Right. We don't question the truth of Scripture because in order to make it easier for us to comprehend, easier for us to memorize, and I think sometimes we've done violence to Scripture by doing that because we cut thoughts off mm -hmm. and put artificial dividers in it, we, over time, to help us in our humanity and our, and our thinking, given handles to ideas, and Trinity would be one of those things that has, is clear throughout Scripture, and all that word is not used in Scripture, it gives us an idea and a handle to talk about that particular concept of belief. Yeah, and certainly the assumptions of the Trinity are there. The yes. logic of it is there. Yes. The worldview that says the triune God is revealing something to creation. Though we may not have the, the proper words to conceptualize this, it is certainly being revealed. Anthony, I know you had some, some thoughts. Um, just to his point about 
how over time we'll sort of give names to these concepts. Imagine if every time you had to refer to God, you had to explain the nature of his deity. <laughs> like seriously, imagine if we didn't have a name for God. It'd be ridiculous. We'd have to explain a seriously hard concept with many words rather than just using the one word God. You know, and that's sort of how it is with the Trinity. You don't want to have to say that there is the try. It's sort of hard to even talk about without using Trinitarian language. So imagine yeah. having to explain that every time you said something about it. Yeah, get out your like pop up kind of flow chart. <laughs> well, and even to Anthony's point, we've boiled God down to God or Lord. Mm -hmm. and, but when we look at the Old Testament, we see all these different names. Yeah, for God that it, that that address his attributes, his characteristics, yeah. uh, his healing nature, his redemptive nature, his sanctifying nature, his peace nature, all of those things. And you're right, if we had to go through every time and give this long list, but over, over time we've, we've boiled it down to a, a single word. Yeah, and, and not only have we boiled it down to a single word, I might extend that to say we've boiled it down to a single temperament. Yes. And by that... When you look back throughout the history of the people of God, people have been very legitimately scared to use the name of God casually. Like this is not even something you can write down when you're doing something in honor of God. And whenever you are, are going to approach the divine, one has to have an amount of reverence with them. And you see this throughout our history. And people, as they have lost a lot of the meaning with the Trinity and even the basic concepts that we've talked about before, such as Christ being the, the word, people have lost a little bit of the gravity, I feel like, with the names associated with God. What do y'all think about that? Well, and I think, and I've seen a lot um, in recent, I, I talked to my sister a lot, and she's at seminary at um, in Kansas City and kind of talking about how they're, they're handling and dealing with it and how they deal with it in their writing. And there's this trend to kind of go back to that ancient Hebrew way of not putting the vowel. Well, Hebrew doesn't have vowels, but like you put kind of G slash D is how you write. And it's this, this idea of kind of trying to come back to this idea of reverence uh, of how to treat that name. And I think it's interesting because, you know, as much as we talk about, we don't want to play word games. We're not, you know, in it just kind of to fight semantics. There's something that like when you have to pause and we're so used to instant technology, just typing a couple of letters and bam, we have our thought across and it's not usually very well thought through um, to actually say, even when you're just texting, even when you're typing or whether it's handwriting it out or even when you're speaking that every time you have to um, invoke. And that's really what, what by saying the word of God is, is you're doing is it's not just a word that's kind of you know, causing vibrations out in the air. It, it, you really are saying that this character, this nature, this essence um, is somehow going to be present in yeah. the conversation. And so you have to take it reverently because, I mean, that would be like if every time I said the word lightning, it would crash across the sky. Um, and I'm not trying to over imagine, you know, mystify it or make it comical, but I'm just saying like, we would, you would, you know, you wouldn't say the word lightning so casually if you knew that was going to happen. Yeah. And so there is this ancient aspect um, that is trying to, I think people are trying to um, revive and re-understand about, like when we say the word God, when we say Trinity, when we say Yahweh, Jehovah, um, I don't know, whatever word you want to use, um, that there's something very special, that the, a reality is, is coming into being um, of, of talking about this. It is not just a word, um, but, but somehow you are invoking an eternal presence to be part of whether it's the conversation or the written word um, or even a recording like this. Right, right. Pastor Sherman, did you have any thoughts before we... Uh, Move back to the it was there that it fleeted, so we can move on to the next one. <laughs> All right, if it so comes we'll, back to me, we'll, we'll go back to it. Sounds fantastic. All right, going back to the article, <laughs> there is this interesting language there. 
And when Pastor Amanda read it, there was not a misspeak. It actually is the word convincing. So many times when we think of Holy Spirit, we associate this with the word conviction. But within that language, there's this notion that the Holy Spirit is convincing the word of sin. Pastor Sherman, bring us some, some insight into this because this, for a lot of people, is confusing language. And even when you read it, you say, oh my goodness, did they mistype the Nazarene manual? What's going on here? How does that even make sense? Well, you know, as we were discussing this earlier, two thoughts came to mind. Uh, the first is, is that uh, I went immediately in my mind to an old song of the church, um, I Know Whom I Have Believed. And uh, we talked about the fact that this was old language. That's probably been, you know, from time to time we tweak some of the words in our articles of faith. Uh, I feel like maybe this is a word from some, some things you said about your research, that maybe this is a word that's been around for a long time, maybe even original to, yeah. to our thought uh, as particular, this particular article of faith. And I was reminded of some, the song, I Know Who I'm, I Have Believe It, and I Googled it quick. Uh, aren't we glad we have Google? Uh, that song's from 1883. And there's a verse in there that says, uh, I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him. And, and I got to thinking about the idea of convince. And I think, although it's old language, that it is a very relevant word for the day. Because we live in a time where people are so skeptical. I think we live in a time where there's such great divide between people groups and conversation. Well, there's not a whole lot of conversation where there's just a lot of screaming yeah. back and forth. And, and the, the idea of sin, the, the biblical idea of sin, I think is one that is lost on so many people. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that people don't need to be just made aware of sin. I think they need to be convinced of sin, mm -hmm. of the nature of sin, and what real sin is. You know, we, we tend to, to think of big, ugly things like murder and rape and um, stealing uh, and, and those kinds of things as, as being sin. But greed is sin. Hatred is sin. Yeah. Uh, not loving your, your fellow uh, as you, person as you would as yourself, your neighbor, is sin. The, the scripture is so clear about what mm -hmm. sin looks like. Really disobeying anything that God has told us not to do or not doing what God has told us to do are all sins. Yeah, I want to build off this a little bit because I think as our world becomes increasingly pagan and secular, it has rejected the notion that sin exists, but at the same time, there's something deep built within humanity that knows it's out there. And one of my observations about the modern world as it is trying to reject Christian tradition, a lot of the Christian language, it still needs a word to describe something to this effect, even though it's a overwhelmingly underdeveloped thing. And I think we see in the secular pagan world, and I'm going to use the word pagan to describe it, they use the word hate in lieu of the word sin. And I feel like at, there is a real thing such as hate. And people have mischaracterized. They, this has kind of become a buzzword in our culture that people throw around when they're trying to describe something that may or may not be described as sin, but they're, they're trying to project that on there. Amanda, what do you think about that? Well, and I think this is why when we, we come to this word convincing, the Holy Spirit convinces, we have to have, like what Pastor Sherman said, a good biblical understanding of sin because we do get into these weird potholes. And I think sometimes, especially in the evangelical church, we, we've dug ourselves a little bit in a hole because there was this trend um, where we would, you know, evangelism was you, you went out, 
in, into community. You found your random target and you're like, you know, are you a sinner? And then you, you had to convince them they were a sinner. And then when they finally, when you kind of put them in the, the, the logical uh, uh, stronghold of that, they finally have to admit they're a sinner. Then you're like, but I have a remedy. And then you go through like the Roman road or the ABCs or whatever of salvation. And so when we come to, so someone like from my generation who's kind of seen that strategy, when we read this word about Holy Spirit convincing, we're like, oh, ooh, that seems weird. Um, but it has such this, this great thing because it's not, if we only make sin out to be this very narrow concept, if we only say, well, it's just hatred and we have this kind of buzzword thing about hatred, then the remedy is going to be very, very narrow. Yeah. And then then, then the, the response, well, if hatred's just what is um, disagrees with me, you hate me because you disagree with me, then the remedy is I just have to surround myself with people who, who um, agree with me. Yeah. Or I have to do away with, with the people who disagree with me. Or if, if all hatred is, is because, you know, whatever that is, then the remedy is is a certain policy or certain people in, in political power or the right pastor or the right sermon or, you know, whatever. It's very narrow. But if we look at and really allow that word of convincing to be much broader and the Holy Spirit's not just kind of the person that like, you know, breaks down your door and is like, you're a sinner. Um, but instead it's like, you're broken. You know, you, you have all these hurts and the pains of the world. Um, your your community's broken. The world is broken. There, there's just so much destruction, but there's a remedy for all of it. And it's so much bigger than just your political view or your current buzzword or situation um but it's so in this again and i love our article of faith that it's active right it's even in the article of faith that the holy spirit is active it's not something that happened one day someday a thousand two thousand three thousand years ago it's not something just your you know your great grandmother experienced at revival one day it's something that's happening and and it's bigger it's so much bigger um right. than i think often even we in the church try to we try to pigeonhole the holy spirit a little bit and it's yes like, no P people try to pigeonhole a lot of things <laughs> but this is actually a good segue into the next point because if the world needs if, if you don't have god at the center of your moral compass something is going to fill that void and this is where idolatry creeps in it's so interesting when you look at scripture whether you look at something like job or even with the the serpent there in genesis and i know i've talked about these a lot but oftentimes you see those things which are doing wicked and evil they don't win by becoming the new object of your worship they win by simply getting you to look away from god from removing god from his position at the top of your moral compass and that they put you on the path of cursing god and dying which is really the way a lot of evil things do Hence, one must have God there at the top of the moral compass. Which brings us back to this idea of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's role in regenerating and sanctifying the believers. As we go back to our article, there is this language that the Holy Spirit is regenerating and sanctifying. And of course, if you're being regenerated or sanctified, that must mean that there is an issue that you have to be regenerated and sanctified away from. And there must be a target. Um, Pastor Sherman, what does it really even mean for us for the Holy Spirit to be active in regenerating and sanctifying us? Why Why is this a thing? Why should anybody be? As you were uh, saying that question and, and talking about regeneration, uh, I went back in my mind just for a moment to uh, Christian theology class. And uh, Dr. Mike McClure, uh, who I took Christian theology from, a Nazarene elder uh, and uh, professor, and he... Um, he talked about this being bio a biological term, hmm. uh, regeneration being a biological term. And, uh, and I was thinking that, you know, in Scripture it reminds us that, you know, Paul says that the old has gone and the new has come. That speaks of a, a regenerative process. 
I think when we look at many words about salvation and the, the thing that happens to us, they all tend to speak uh, being born again. Uh, you know, again, you know, Jesus said you must be born again, speaks of a, to me, of a, a regenerative process. And um, so in any process, there has to be an active agent to bring about the process. And in this case, the active agent bringing about that process is the, is the Holy Spirit of God. And because of the nature of salvation, how it works, that can only be done by a sovereign. Hmm. It cannot be done by us. And, and just looking at the process of what happens to us in salvation, I think speaks to the deity of the Holy Spirit. Wow, very good. Well, we're going to take a break. We're going to go to a, a commercial. And we'll be back in a moment to continue our conversation on the Holy Spirit. Oh, no, ladies and gentlemen, dog is back. And let me grab my notes so that I can do a commercial. Oh, yes, ladies and gentlemen, those of us at Kingdom of the Lagos are here to provide you with an alternative to the pagan culture around you. And we need your support. Liking and sharing our content does so much for us. Our videos are on YouTube, Facebook, and our podcast is on SoundCloud, CastBox, iTunes, and more. If you would like to donate monetarily, you can do so at patreon.com slash kingdom of the logos. God love you and have a blessed day. All right, we are coming back together. It's always great to hear from Charlie the church history dog. He's always <laughs> doing something adventurous. Um, and it is interesting to see a dog behind the pulpit. Uh, ultimately, when they come and fire me, um, maybe maybe they will hire Charlie to to do some good. Um, actually, give a, a an interesting message. Anyways, let's get back to this language of the Holy Spirit being part of the Triune Godhead. And the next thing that I want us to to talk about is this notion that the Holy Spirit is guiding people into truth. And again, we're looking at the third article of faith in the Church of the Nazarene, which discusses the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to throw this over to Pastor Amanda. When we look at this language and it says guiding people into truth, what does this even mean? Well, and I think it's it's a, a natural kind of process from even the statement we said before the, the um, commercial break about the Holy Spirit regenerating and sanctifying. Um, and, and again, this truth is much bigger often. Um, we, we try to categorize it. We try to make it very narrow and very small. Um, and, and we see, and I like how even in your in your notes, the spirit of truth, truth is capitalized. There, there's something here that's happening much bigger um, than just whatever random facts people may know or random things people may know. But this is this is the truth. Um, and this is where we get into some, I think, some interesting language where we really see the spirit of God and the whole uh, the Holy Spirit and and the Son and the Father all kind of communicating together. Because we even see, you know, Jesus talks about being the way, the truth, and the life. Um, but also, he Jesus proclaims that the message he preaches is not his own, but is the Father's. And he is sent by the Father and empowered by the Spirit. And so we, we see this wonderful interaction of the triune God happening, where, where again, um, without a doubt, 
Jesus's life, ministry, death, and resurrection is the pinnacle of, of salvation, of, of God's redemptive acts in the world. But God has always been redeeming. The triune God did that. You know, really, redemption was taking place in the Garden of Eden. Um, I think even really before Adam and Eve sinned, there was wholeness, there was holiness, there was truth, uh, there was blessing, there was life that was happening. And those actions did not stop just because Adam and Eve sinned, but continued. Um, it reached its pinnacle in the life of Christ, and then it continued continued through through the church, um, the early church, and hopefully it continues through the church today. Um, and we see this where there's something so much bigger the people of God are being invited into, and each individual is being transformed into back into the image that they were originally created to be, and that is the image of God, that is Christ-likeness, um, that is truth. Um, and so the Spirit is that agent, um, as Pastor Sherman talked about, that, that empowers us to do it. And as Wesleyan holiness, we believe that righteousness, uh, holiness can be ours. It's not an appearance. It's not we seem like we're people of truth, um, but we can actually be made true. Um, it, but it's not within ourselves. Um, as soon as we trust in ourselves, that is idolatry. That is selfishness. That is sin. Uh, it's really kind of the basis of sin. Again, going back to the garden, the whole temptation was uh, you can choose what is uh, right and wrong. But if we trust the Holy Spirit to make us righteous, to sanctify us, to lead us to truth, um, then we can find that we are actually made righteous, made whole um, people of truth. Pastor Sherman, I want us to talk a little bit about truth itself because for my generation, we live in a world of live your truth. And for so many people, the very notion of there being a transcendental truth that is bigger for you, it's lost on a lot of people. And when you don't understand that there can actually be a truth with a capital T, people have almost no moral certainty in life. And it's it's one of the, the great downfalls of where our culture is at is because people think, well, truth is always subjective. It's whatever you interpret it to be. But yet we look to our traditions. We look to what God has revealed to us. There seems to be notion that not every truth is your truth. Uh, talk to us a little bit about truth in general. Yeah, you've uh, unknowingly pushed one of my buttons. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Pastor Dylan, I, I, um, the this whole idea of you and I have separate truths. Mm -hmm. um, I get where that comes from. We have we have separate, we've had different existences, experiences, and we have different perceptions. Yeah. Okay. And perceptions can become truth for some people, but it doesn't make it true. Mm -hmm. Where the Holy Spirit can help us. Uh, and this goes, I think, to the counseling aspect a little bit. Uh, the Holy Spirit can help us if we will allow the Holy Spirit to do so. Uh, to guide us into truth and to help us really see what is true. Um, turn the light on, if you will, in the midst of darkness. Yeah. And, and, and our world, for sure, is a dark place. But any place we go as Christians and, and the Holy Spirit abiding in us and with us, we bring light and with light we bring truth. Think, think of being in a, in a completely dark room, not being able to see and hearing noises and having no understanding for what that noise is, your mind can take you into all kinds of things. Perception, okay? And your perception there is you hear this sound and for you, your truth might be, I, there's a lion in the room mm -hmm. when that's not the case at yeah. all. And when the light comes on, and when the light comes on, you see, oh, that wasn't a lion at all. Yeah. It was just some machine making a noise. Yeah, and whenever I'm talking about this issue, I always use the illustration of taking a dog to the vet. Because for many people, they say, well, you haven't experienced what I've experienced. Therefore, you could have no insight into this at all. 
Um, yesterday, actually, I took Charlie the church history dog. He, he went and got rabies shots and a few other things, just more routine, nothing big. But, you know, does the veterinarian require to be another chihuahua in other to give him, you know, a shot? You know, I had to take another dog a couple of months ago that had to, to have his shoulder stitched up. You know, does that one, can only a another kind of reddish looking mutt work on that one? You know, there's this idea that you can't at all have any idea where I'm at. You can't have any wisdom. You can't have any insight. You can't even counsel me if you have not lived in my experience, which if we're going to be honest, is actually completely impossible. It's it's un completely impossible standard to live by. Um, even if it is a chihuahua doing surgery on another chihuahua, they're going to have had different lives anyway. So that's not even a standard that people can live by. So, and it ended up, it's one of the my buttons that kind of gets pushed too, because I think it takes people to a place where there is no moral certainty, which opens them up to be you know, ruled over and consumed by so many things. This is the, the evil crouching at the door, trying to come in and get you. If you have no moral certainty, if you don't have something guiding you, if you don't have a moral compass that is actually fixed to something which is eternal, something which is immovable, you find your place in a really, really just messy spot to be in. Which I think really brings us full circle back to where we began this conversation about that phrase convincing mm. the world of sin. Because, um, and, and I was thinking about this as Pastor Amanda was talking about counseling. And you know, over in Isaiah it talks about him being the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, the, you know, the, the, a great counselor for us. Right. Um, when, when people go into counseling, counselors don't tell you what to do or at least a good counselor won't. A good counselor will help you work through what your issue is, will help you talk about solutions, formulate a plan, and then encourage you to do that plan, but they can't make you. The Holy Spirit cannot make us do anything. Well, at least as Wesleyans, we believe that he doesn't, okay? We, we have that choice, that free yeah. will whether to do, and I know that's another article of faith for another day. But it, anyway, and, and so he, 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 the Holy Spirit, counsels us uh, and leads us into truth, but in the end, we still have to do something with it, yeah, or not. And and that's why again I come back to uh, and had really thought about this till we began this conversation. Convincing is such an important part of that article yeah. of faith and understanding the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives today. Yeah, and we have one more point that I want us to talk about, and that is examining the role of the Holy Spirit. And also comparing that to wisdom in the Old Testament. I know there, there are some people that I know personally that have had some questions about this. And there may be some other of you who have those questions as well. Before we do get into that, some final thoughts on this notion of convincing. One of the big issues that I really do see in life is that people, when they lack moral certainty, they find that this doesn't mean that they're not convicted by things. But they start to be convicted by things which are more or less spirits of the age than they are to anything which has that eternal value. And it puts people in a position where they can willfully do some really bad things. And they do this under a moral conviction thinking that it's good. Even you see uh, G.K. Chesterton talk about this quite, big, quite a bit. He, he's saying that one of the most dangerous things is somebody who is insane, but they have moral conviction that what they're doing is good and they end up doing some bad things. Well, let's get to this fifth proposal I have for us to discuss. And it's this idea that the Holy Spirit has a relationship to wisdom in the Old Testament. 
A while ago at the church where I pastor, I did a series where we looked at some different pieces of wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And as we were going through Proverbs, there were times where people started to pick up on this motif of wisdom being personified. And, and I've had a few people come to me and ask the question, is the personified wisdom in the Old Testament the same thing as, as what we see with the Holy Spirit? And some people even point to Proverbs 8.22 where, again, the personified wisdom is talking and you get the specific verse saying, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. And that's um, Proverbs 8, 22 and 23 from the English Standard Version. Uh, Pastor Sherman, what do you think about this role of, of wisdom? Is that something which is the same as the Holy Spirit? Is it the product of the Holy Spirit? Where does that fit into the picture? Because I know there's some confusion about, about this. You know, quite honestly, I had not thought about that until we were, you know, having our pre-podcast or <laughs> videocast discussion. And even as you were asking that question, for whatever reason, this passage of scripture popped into my mind, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of yeah. all wisdom. Yeah. And, and, and then, and I thought, you know, um, the Holy Spirit guides us yeah. into that fear. Now, of course, when I say fear, I think we all know we're not talking about um, coward in a corner, afraid that God's going to zap us with a bolt of lightning from the big throne in the sky fear. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about uh, a fear that comes out of awe and respect, a fear yeah. that comes out of love and understanding uh, that he is our father, the, the, the appropriate fear that we would expect children to have of their parents, not again, not in an abusive way, yeah. but, but in a reverent way. And so uh, I, the concept or the, the proposition that, that wisdom personified in the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit, I, I, think I, can, uh, I think I can wrap my head around that a little bit when we think about some of the teachings yeah. uh, of Solomon through wisdom and some of the other wisdom. Even if you think of the, the, the Proverbs of the New Testament in James, yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of guidance there that I think is best instructed through the Holy Spirit. Well. I'm not claiming at all to be a, a expert in Hebrew at all, but I, I can work enough with Greek that I can piece through things and I enjoy reading the Septuagint. And when we look to that section in Proverbs, which says that idea that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, when you actually look at that, there are a few elements there which they don't exactly reference something like John chapter one or Genesis, um, but you do get that beginning moment for people. But the language that is there specifically describing the fear it's a very interesting thing because it's a bit of a physiological reaction. And by that, it's something which is body and mind. There's this idea that you actually have a physical reaction. And as opposed to a lot of people in our modern world who throw the word phobia around a lot, actually fear is a specific emotion. Um, the human body is quite complex and we can actually examine these things and see people experiencing an actual emotion. And not just because you call something that doesn't make it so. Um, this moment of fear of the Lord, there's an actual physiological structure going on. And this kind of relates to your concept of things being biological. Your body kind of takes away its fine motor skills. You are minimized down to a gross motor skill and fixation on a particular thing. Now, whether that's something which is a threat or just something which really catches your eye, you get nervous. All of your, the edges of your behavior is kind of trimmed off and you're stuck in this gross motor skill thing and there, to look at the specific language, it's a withdrawal from. 
And when you look at this idea of you see God and when you have fear of God, when you're fixated on that, all the peripheral behavior is, is trimmed away and you're withdrawing something from God, that thing which is being withdrawn is wisdom. And it's something which can only be arrived at as long as all of those outside things are trimmed away. You've got to actually be focused on God to get that. It's very interesting, but let me just throw this back to Pastor Amanda on wisdom and the Holy Spirit. Well, I think it's something really interesting. And, and again, we have to kind of go back to something I mentioned earlier when we talked in one of our first is, is we, we have to be uh, good biblical scholars to understand um, one that could be definitely something that references the Holy Spirit as we understand it now. Uh, we have to also recognize um, probably at the, the original audience, uh, the authors and, and people who kind of came into the work of, of these Old Testament writings didn't have a concept of the Trinity. So that's not exactly what they were thinking. But that doesn't mean that's not what we, we can read. And, and definitely it still speaks that um, to the truth of the Holy Spirit as this active agent that, that convinces us of truth, that works at us. Um, and I think the we have to have a solid understanding of the Holy Spirit if we're going to kind of read back the Holy Spirit into these Old Testament passages. And the reason I say that is I think oftentimes, um, especially I see this more in the conversation of, of when we talk about Jesus, where, you know, when Jesus does something miraculous, we're like, oh, well, that was just because he was fully God. And we're like, well, he was also fully human. Um, you know, and again, there's this call that we can't just say, well, Jesus just did that because he was Jesus. But no, we, we are, can be enabled to do that. And so I think we have to be careful because sometimes when we're like, oh, well, you know, wisdom, that's the Holy Spirit. That's something like out there in the universe and the cosmos that we can't touch. Um, but if we have a good understanding of the Holy Spirit, then we can read that into these passages and see that, you know, this wisdom, again, it's not something far off and distant. Um, it is transcendent. It is, it is beyond us. This is the cool thing about our God, right? He is infinite. He is all powerful. Um, and yet this God put on flesh and walked amongst us. Um, and yet this wisdom comes down to us and is for us to then be enabled to apply it to our lives. Um, and it's it just, it's fascinating that that happens. And that happens, I think, in this passage in Proverbs that you specifically reference is, you know, this is something that's been at work in the very foundation of the earth. There's mm. wisdom. You know, the way the world works, the way the planets uh, rotate and revolve, the, the way the you know, sun rises and sets, there's wisdom, there's order. And we can even go back to Jesus being called the word, the logos, this logic, you know, that our God is a God of order, whether it's the father, the son or the spirit, there's order, there's wisdom. Um, and this wisdom can be imparted to us in such a sense that we can participate in this wisdom and in this order. Um, and in this regeneration and sanctification to continue to use uh, the language of, of this article of faith. And I think if we have that good understanding, then we can definitely see the Holy Spirit in work as wisdom personified. But we have to have that good understanding or otherwise we kind of distance ourselves from the truth that can be read in this. Absolutely. And we're going to go ahead and, and wrap up our program there. Um, any final thoughts, Pastor Sherman? Oh, Anthony has something he wanted to, to throw in there. Okay, so this is something uh, that I thought was pretty interesting, but whenever, whenever we were talking just now, I realized that there, a lot of times conviction is associated with the Holy Spirit. A lot of times, um, in fact, I think in Christian circles, that's probably like the only context the word <laughs> conviction is used in, is whenever the Holy Spirit's involved. And so seeing that that's not part of it, that word is not in the article of faith. I was wondering, I was like, hmm, that's kind of weird. And then I realized we actually have better language to communicate a similar, but I would still say a better sentiment. And here's kind of why I'm saying that is because a lot of times whenever people use 
the language of conviction. I was convicted. I'm convicted. It's an urge to engage in some sort of behavior or feeling, and it's a one-time thing. It's there. After it's done, it's done. The Holy Spirit convicted me, past tense. And so the reason why I say that there's better language there is because I noticed that sanctification actually has a similar sentiment, but it's not just a one-time change your behavior or behave in this certain way this one certain time, and after that, the Holy Spirit will leave you and come back whenever God needs you again. <laughs> it's you're going the, the nature of your being is going to be made Christ-like. The way you are is going to change for now until uh, the day of redemption, so long as you don't turn away from the Lord. Again, another article for another day. <laughs> but um, so I, I, I just thought that I'd bring that up because I thought that it was pretty interesting. It's a different way to think about the way that the Holy Spirit works. It's not one time message, do this. It's we're going to change the nature of your being. And that's going to be in part what guides what to do. Does this mean we can take a whole new conversation to to debunk the idea that people can't backslide? <laughs> or that, we'll, we'll get to that oh, another day. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be another time for another day. We're, we're towards the end. Stay tuned. <laughs> I, I, yeah, stay tuned for more. Um, I think the big takeaway, I think is, as far as the revelation that I had to me within this conversation, I don't know about you all, but the actual word convincing is pretty neat to be in there. Um, but y'all tell me your final thoughts. Brother Sherman? Well, I, I was thinking as, as Anthony was talking, as, as we've had this whole conversation, that uh, there can't be conviction without convincing. Oh, very good. You think, take a jury trial. Yeah. Somebody get convicted, you have to convince a jury they're guilty or a judge. There can't be, there can't be a change as far as it relates. We, we, we won't make a step to be act more wise or be more wise unless we're convinced that what yeah. we're doing is unwise. Right. So, you know, I think, I think the key here in all of it is, is convincing. And just to build off that a little bit, convincing, this is a spiritual matter. I used to think that you convinced people using logic and, you know, balance reason and revelation and give people a well-articulated, compelling sermon, and they'll just come to know Christ in droves. No. <laughs> no. Some people hate the truth. <laughs> it, convincing really is a spiritual matter. Yes. Amanda, final thoughts? Well, and I think to take that further, I, we have to, um, and I'm not trying to play a language game or anything, but we have to expand this idea of a spiritual matter. Because um, I think hmm. sometimes we think spiritual matter is something that takes place on Sunday morning at 1045 and it stops at noon and we're good, right? Because um, it's spiritual. It's at church. And then we get to leave it and live our physical and emotional social lives outside of it. Um, but if we really understand exactly what, what the Holy Spirit, and as Anthony was talking, you know, this is a great concept we have to hold on to, is it's not just, for without a doubt, um, Phoebe Palmer talked a lot about laying it all on the altar, and that's very important. But you leave it all on the altar, and then you continue to live a life that has left... Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you know, everything on the altar, like you, every moment, every day. And that's why the Holy Spirit is so important. And I think it is funny also in the holiness tradition, the Holy Spirit gets probably the shortest article of faith, which is funny. But, you know, and if we are really to live holy lives, um, then it has to be an active ongoing. And yes, there was that one moment where we laid it all on the altar, but that every moment, and, and I think if we expand it beyond kind of our, our world's, boil down concept of spiritual where when the Holy Spirit comes and 
convicts and convinces that it changes every aspect. And there may still be things, trials and tribulations that we go through, but our very physical being, our emotional being, our, our social aspects, every part of us gets transformed uh, by the Holy Spirit. And and so that's, I, I think that's just, again, it's the fascinating thing about our God. Our God's not just concerned about this abstract concept of the soul. Um, our God did not come just to save an abstract concept. Our God came to save us. And that's a great place to leave it. God love you and have a blessed day.